0: Well, tonight I am uh, really excited to start a new series with us called Things I Wish Jesus Never Said. And um, see, I like to be comfortable, right? Like, I really like to be comfortable in my life. So at my house, I have a couch. And on my couch, I have like my own spot on the couch. It's like, it's my spot. It's got a little recliner built into it. It's actually broken, but it, it fits my body just perfectly. Marsha laughs because I'm, I'm sort of crooked on it. But I love it. It's my favorite spot. My bed, I have a pillow top mattress to my bed, you know, so it's nice, and it's and it's comfy, it's squishy. My favorite article of clothing is sweatpants. Like, I like to be comfortable, right? And I don't like to be uncomfortable. I don't like it. So, I don't like hard chairs, like hard benches, especially during long sermons, right? I feel for you guys. I don't like firm mattresses and I hate neckties. Neckties are like the most uncomfortable thing in the world to me. Like we all probably prefer to be comfortable, right? Like we, we, we prefer it in our lives. And when something or someone makes things difficult for us, it's not fun. And if I'm honest and I look at some of the things that Jesus said, some of the things that he said make me uncomfortable. Because some of the things that Jesus said are like super challenging, really challenging, counterintuitive, countercultural, and really convicting. And so during this series, I want to look at some of those things. Like I want to look at some of the hard things, some of the challenging things that Jesus said to us. And I want to try to understand what it means for us to live these things out in our lives. Because I'm pretty convinced that Jesus didn't say these things just to make our lives difficult. Right? I don't think that's, I don't think that's why I said these things, to make our lives difficult. And maybe in doing so, and trying to understand what Jesus is saying and why He's saying that, some of these you know things that, that He's talking about will be a little bit less uncomfortable with them, and actually maybe even be excited to follow them. So here's what I'm going to do over the next five weeks: we're going to look at five different clusters of verses from uh, Jesus's most famous sermon in all the Bible. This is His mountain sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew's chapter five through seven. Matthew five through seven. Um, And I have a challenge for you, okay? As we we jump into this, I have a challenge for you that I really want you to consider. I want to challenge you each week to read these three chapters at least once during the entire series this is my challenge, each week to read these three chapters, it's Not it's not a huge chunk, but to read these three chapters at least once during this entire series, because I know that some of you are really consistent in, in kind of picking up the Bible and, and getting in the Bible each week, maybe some of you are on some reading plans, things like that, but I also know that some of us are not real consistent with it, and some of us don't pick up the Bible very often, or maybe we've gotten out of that habit. This is a great place for us to start, because his sermon here is so practical, It's so powerful. Like there's such wisdom, absolute wisdom. And as I read it, as I I read about the things that Jesus said and the things that that Jesus did, it just draws me to him. It attracts me to him. And when you read it, if you do this, if if you accept the challenge, when you read it, talk to God. Like, talk to him and listen to him and ask God to speak, you, speak to you. Ask him to transform you. Ask him to impassion you. Ask him to reveal himself to you in a way that you haven't experienced him in the past. See, I don't think that there's any way that we could get to know God without reading his word and without talking to him. So I want to challenge you to like use this time to dig into these three chapters of Jesus' most wonderful, his most inspiring, his most challenging words. Just try it and see what happens. See how God responds and see how God changes you. That's, that's my challenge to you. Shake your head if you're going to do it. Okay. I like the video. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so uh, I have three guys that I really deeply respect and that I've used a lot this, uh, this past week and I will throughout this series in studying the Sermon on the Mount. Um, three theologians that um, are just incredible writers, thinkers, and followers of Jesus that I kind of just want to give them credit as I, as I dig into this. So one guy's name is, is Don Carson, D.A. Carson. Another guy's name is Craig Blomberg. And another guy's name is John Stott. Um, I have used a lot of what they have written um, extensively, and so I want to give them credit for that. Two of those guys I've had a chance to meet and talk to, incredible men, the other guy's dead, so I haven't had a chance to talk to him, but um, these are guys that I've used extensively in preparing for tonight. So a lot of my understanding from the passages comes from that, and one of those guys, D.A. Carson said something that pretty much sums up what I have felt this week as I've been preparing for tonight, and this is what he said, we're going to throw it up on the screen too, this is what he says, he says, so there's a theologian saying this, okay? He says, the more I read these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the more I'm both drawn to them and shamed by them. Their brilliant light draws me like a moth to a spotlight, but the light is so bright that it sears and burns. Like, that's, that's how I felt this week. I was talking to my wife, Marcia, and I was studying, and I said, it feels like I got slapped in the face this week but by the loving hand of God's word. Like that's, that's what it felt like. And it hurt a little bit because I realized how short I fall. And I think tonight, if you're honest, like if you go on this journey with me tonight and you're honest and we dig into this, um, you might feel a little bit like that too. But at the same time, I felt so encouraged and like drawn to these words of Jesus because I could feel God's spirit whisper to my spirit that these words are truth and they're life-giving. And God's not keeping some sort of like heavenly scorebook with me, you know, marking off every time I fail, every time I don't live up to what we're going to look at here. He's patient with us. And he's gracious to us. And his spirit is transforming us as we choose to follow him. And so tonight, I don't want you to get frustrated. Like, what we're going to go into is serious. Like, it's some pretty heavy stuff, okay? But I don't want you to get frustrated and want to give up because you fall short. You do fall short. And so do I. Like, that's part of it. But if you've embrace the gospel. If you're somebody who's sitting here tonight and you've embraced the gospel, here's what I want you to think about I want, as we go through this. I want you to be grateful for God's grace and God's forgiveness as you kind of recognize your shortcomings, okay? I want you, I want you to be grateful for that. If you sit here tonight and you're somebody who hasn't embraced the gospel yet, first of all, I'm really glad that you're here. This is a a safe place to be as you're investigating Jesus. This is a safe place to be. But if you haven't embraced the gospel yet, I just want you tonight to consider what Jesus is saying. And I want you to know this, that he loves you right where you're at more than you could ever imagine. Okay? So tonight, if you haven't embraced the gospel, just listen tonight. But if you have, I want you to, to take this and be grateful as you recognize your shortcomings. And you will. I have. You will. As you recognize your shortcomings, be grateful for God's grace and his forgiveness and then don't be okay with your shortcomings. Like a lot of times we can go, "Well, shucks. This is just something that I'm going to struggle with the rest of my life." Well, don't do that. I don't think that's God's plan for us that we always have to that we just we we succumb to some sort of struggle the rest of our lives. Don't do that. But instead, you know, commit to Jesus that he has leadership in your life and then get excited. I hope tonight you walk out of here a little bit excited. Get excited about God's spirit changing you as you pursue Christ and as you invite him into your life, okay? So grab your Bibles, if you would, and flip them open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we got a whole table of them back there uh, I think it helps to, to see it in front of you, we'll throw it up on the screen too But if you don't have a Bible, grab one of those back there in the church Bibles, it's page 785 So Matthew is the first book in the New Testament So the Bible's broken up into kind of two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament The Old Testament's about three quarters of the Bible, the New Testament's the last quarter of the Bible The book of Matthew is the very first book in the New Testament so as you're, as you're flipping there, let me give you a little bit of background of what we're going to talk about, kind of what's going on. So Jesus is going around, and he's, and he's teaching, and he's preaching, and he's healing people, and then large crowds start to follow him because he's getting people's attention, right? you got, you got a, a powerful teacher, and you're doing miracles. People are attracted to that, right? So this large crowd of people starts following him. And Back then, they didn't have any mics. So when he sees this large crowd of people, I read a little bit about this this week, like if, if we're all on the same level, level, you wouldn't be able to hear me as well. But when you're elevated above them, your voice carries. So no mics back then. So Jesus actually literally goes on the side of a mountain and he preaches to these people. So he's talking to these crowds and he's talking to his disciples. So these are people that had at some level begun following Jesus. Minimally, they're interested. Minimally, they're curious. And what he's telling them is how to live as his followers. This is Jesus's, what we're going to look at, this is Jesus' own description of his followers. How should we think? How should we act? Well, here you go. In Jesus' very own words. And again, as we talk about this, as we talk about what the character and the description of what Jesus' followers look like, again, this isn't about us striving to live in such a way in order to be approved by God. This isn't about us striving to live this way in order to be accepted by God or try to earn something from God or try to get him to love us. What Jesus describes here is what we seek to become as we invite him into our lives, as we as we accept his forgiveness, as we accept his grace, as we embrace embrace his gospel. This is what we look to become as we function and we make decisions in our lives as he's transforming us. We both have a part, right? I make decisions and his spirit is transforming me. So again, don't look at this. We're going to get into it. Don't look at this as like a scorebook that Jesus is keeping on you. You know, marking off points every time that you do something that's not consistent with this. See this as what he's transforming you into as you choose to cling to him and as his spirit is changing you, okay? So, here we go. We're going to look at uh, something here that's really challenging, really counterintuitive, really countercultural, really convicting, that's easy to look at and think, man, I wish Jesus didn't say that. So, here we go. Check it out. Uh, Matthew chapter 5. And I want you to, as we look at this, we're going to start in verse 1. As we look at this, notice how reversed this is from what we might more naturally see as valuable. It's like the reverse. Here we go. Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He says, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there it is, right? Like, let the face slapping begin, right? It's like, come on, Jesus. I thought that I was blessed, you know, when I was, when I was rich and when I was happy and when I was aggressive and I was well-respected and I was liked by everyone. Like, you can't be serious, right, Jesus? Like, I read this and I think, man, that is so different than how I'm naturally wired. It's so different than how I'm naturally wired. And then when I get over myself, I think, man, that is so much better than how I'm naturally wired, than what comes naturally to me. So I want to dig into this a bit. And I want to do it by giving you a little bit of information about the Beatitudes. That's what these are called. These eight things are called the Beatitudes. I want to give you a little bit of information about them before we get into each one specifically. So, first thing, beatitude actually means blessed. Like, that, that's what it means. That's what the word means. It means blessed or blessed. And so, each of these uh, eight things starts out with blessed are the or blessed are those, right? And so, that's where, that's where the beatitude comes from. And blessed means approved. So, in, in biblical terminology, blessed means approved. So, these are things that those who are approved by God do, It's important that I said it that way. These are things that those that are approved by God do. It's not things that people do to be approved by God. No, that's not what these are. These are things that describe those who have already been declared approved by God by experiencing his grace through Jesus Christ, okay? So that's the first thing. Second thing is these apply to all Christians. Everyone who knows, believes, loves, and follows Jesus, these apply to. No exceptions. So it's not just, you know, a a super set of standards for pastors and priests and missionaries. That's not what this is. This is for everyone. They weren't just for 2,000 years ago. Or for 60 years ago, you know, during the 50s, or 10 years ago in the Bible Belt, that's not it. These are for every single one of us. Okay, that's the second thing. Third thing, I want you to think of these in a spiritual sense. Like think of these in a heart sense, not just in a physical way, not just in a social way. And here's what I mean by that. Let me explain that. I give you an example. When Jesus says, "Blessed are those who mourn," in verse four, He doesn't just mean people who are sad for any reason are blessed. That's not. That's not what he means, you know? I'm not blessed when I mourn a Brown's loss. We'd we'd be blessed all the time, right? That's that's not what Jesus is talking about. He means blessed in the spiritual sense. He means blessed are those who mourn over sin. My sin and the world's sin. We're going to dig into that a little deeper here in just a second. Or he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's interesting. There's a parallel passage to, to Matthew 5 through 7 in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke. And Luke actually says, blessed are the poor, right? That's what he says. But he doesn't mean that poor people are blessed. Don't think of it in like monetary terms. He means blessed are we when we understand our absolute spiritual poverty. When we understand our absolute spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed am I when I realize just how spiritually helpless I am without God's intervention. We'll m- more on that in a minute too. But I want you to think of these eight beatitudes in more of a spiritual way and a heart way. That's the third thing. Fourth thing. Each quality, each of these beatitudes comes with a spiritual blessing or promise attached to it. Okay? Each of them comes with a promise attached to it. And each in different ways involves deeper intimacy with God. That's what that's what the blessing, that's what the promise is. Intimacy with God. And this is really big. As a Christian, when I live this way, I experience God with deep intimacy. I experience God with deep relationship. You know, if, if you look at each one of them, I get to experience the kingdom of God. I get comforted by Him. I inherit His earth with Him reigning, presumably. I, I'm filled with His righteousness. I'm shown mercy by Him. I'll see Him. I'll get to be His son, and He's my daddy. Like, I don't know about you, but that's the most important thing in the world to me. You know, to know God more deeply, to know Him more intimately as my loving Father. Those are the blessings that come from living this way with Jesus as our Lord. This, I, I wish we had more time tonight to kind of dig into those spiritual blessings. We don't, but I really encourage you, as you take the challenge, as you're reading this and thinking about this and praying about this, dig into those, those blessings, those promises that come along with living this way. And think about what, like, how will that flesh out in my life? What does that look like in my life? So that's a little background on um, the Beatitudes in general. And now here's what I'm going to do for the rest of our time. I want to lead us through a time at looking a little more deeply at each of these, at each of these characteristics. But I have an honest disclaimer to make, okay? I am going to do a terrible disservice to this tonight. I'm going to do a terrible disservice to this tonight because we have so little time and there is so much depth here. There is so much richness here. And so my only hope is that I wet your appetite a little bit. Like, I got to go through these quick. I know these benches are hard, right? I hope that I just whet your appetite a little bit that maybe this week you'll get a chance to dig in a little bit deeper and think about it and pray through these things. Maybe discuss it with a friend or discuss it with your spouse or in your grace group. All I'm going to be able to do tonight is just scratch the surface. But I want to take you through some of what I've been through this week as I've gotten a chance to interact with these things at a little bit deeper level. Like that's, a, that's a huge blessing of being able to share with you guys, of being able to preach is that I get to dig into these things in deep ways. And so I want to just kind of quickly explain each one to you because some of them can be a little bit confusing. And then I want to ask us a question pertaining um, to each one of those that will help us kind of evaluate our lives. Like, how am I doing with each of these things that Jesus says we will be blessed by doing? Okay? So that, that's all I want to do. That's what I want to do for the rest of our time. I'm going to go through each one of these. I'm going to just explain it quickly. And then I'm just going to ask you a question that I've been asking myself this week as I've personally been wrestling through this. Make sense? That's what we're going to do. So I'm going to bombard you with these the way that Jesus bombarded his original recipients with it. You wonder what it would have been like, you know, like how much did he explain these? How quickly did he go through these? It's like overwhelming. So here we go. Here's the first one. Verse 3. We're going to throw it up on the screen to Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In this context, poor, don't, don't think monetarily poor. That's not what this means in biblical imagery. What it means is humble. What it means is lowly. So to be poor in spirit means I realize what I bring of value. I realize what I bring of worth before God. You know what that is? Nothing. Nothing nothing one of those theologians said poverty of spirit, Don Carson said poverty of spirit is the personal acknowledgement of spiritual bankruptcy it's the conscious confession of unworth before God as such it's the deepest form of repentance, like I come to him with nothing like there's nothing that I bring to him and God says well that's pretty impressive Paul there's nothing Like, I bring nothing to Him. I am bankrupt when I go to Him. So here's the question. All I can do is rely on the mercy of God, right? Here's the question that I've been asking myself. Do I realize just how spiritually bankrupt I am? Ask yourself that question. Do I realize just how spiritually bankrupt I am? Or... Do I approach God with a little bit of pride? You know? Do I think that because of some of the things that I've done, there's something good that I deserve from God? I can think that sometimes. To be poor in spirit means I come to you, God, with nothing but empty hands and great need. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Like I said earlier, those that mourn that Jesus is talking about here um, aren't, aren't just people who are sad or who are troubled. Although in another place, Jesus says he tells people to come to him, all you who are weary and burdened and troubled, and he'll give us rest. But here's what he means by this, blessed are those who mourn in this context. Blessed are those who mourn over sin. That's what he's talking about here. Our sins and the sins of the world. Those that mourn over the loss of innocence. I have have two young kids, Luke and Natalie. They're uh, five and eight. Sometimes I look at them and they're so innocent. And it makes me jealous for that, you know? Because as adults, we've been through so much garbage and we lose our innocence, the contrite in heart. John Stott says, sometimes we make light of grace by not making much of sin. We talked about grace. We said grace in the past. We said grace is not receiving what we deserve. Like we deserve punishment. We deserve separation from God. Right? But instead, getting what we don't deserve. And what we don't deserve is forgiveness. What we don't deserve is peace. Sometimes we make light of grace by not making much of sin. So here's the question I've been asking myself. How much does does sin bother me? Mine and the world's? How, how much does it bother me? Like, do I realize how utterly sinful sin is? Like, do, do I ever think about just how ugly sin is? Or do I live as if it's just not that big of a deal? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Um, Craig Blomberg says a meek person is not a wallflower as we often think when I think of meek I always think of the word weak maybe because they rhyme I don't know but I always think of weak when he says a meek person is not a wallflower as we often think when we use the word but one who's humble and gentle and not aggressive that speaks to me because I think I'm naturally wired as somebody who's probably none of those things especially aggressive right John Stott says, meekness is a true view of oneself expressing itself in an attitude and conduct in respect to others. Gentleness with men because of a realization of who we are before God. Don Carson says, meekness is a controlled desire to see others' interests advance ahead of one's own. Can you say that about your life? Do we look at other people that way? Another theologian, Martin Lloyd-Jones, says, the man who's truly meek is the one who is amazed that God and man can think of him as well as they do and treat him as well as they do. Like, How often is that our perspective? Or do we think about what we deserve? Do we think about what we should have? How somebody should have treated us? Here's the question I ask myself. Does who I am compared with God affect who I am compared with others? Think about that. Does who I am compared with a holy, powerful God affect who I am compared with other people? Do I treat people gently and kindly and humbly knowing that I'm not that great and I am much more like them, even the worst of them, than I am like God? That's meekness. Blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the hun- those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You ever been hungry? Yes. Probably some of you are hungry right now. My stomach's growling a little bit right now. You ever been like really hungry, like you haven't eaten anything for 24 hours or longer? Some people would say that we don't know what hunger is here in this country. And, you know, they're probably right. But when I've not eaten for a while, like all I can think about is food. Like all I can think about is like a cheeseburger, you know, or a piece of pizza or something like that. Do I hunger for righteousness the same way? Like do I, is that how I hunger for righteousness? Craig Blomberg says that hungering and thirsting for righteousness is a desire to see God's standards established and obeyed in every area of life. John Stott says it's not just a conformity to the rules, right? It's not just physical, it's not just outward, it's not just a conformity to the rules, but an inner righteousness and social righteousness. Here's a question. Do I really hunger and thirst for righteousness in my life and in the world? Like is that is that what I is that what I'm hungry for? Or are there other things that I'm hungering for much more? Like what I should have. Like power like money, like security. What do I have an appetite for? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy, Carson says, mercy is a loving response prompted by the misery and helplessness of the one on whom the love is to be showered. Let me say that again. Mercy is a loving response prompted by the misery and helplessness of the one on whom the love is to be showered. Think about that. Blomberg says, merciful embraces the characteristics of being generous, forgiving others, having compassion for the suffering, and providing healing of every kind. Anybody feeling convicted yet? Here's a question I ask myself. How merciful am I to the miserable and helpless? How do do I do with that? Am I generous with them? Or am I condescending to them? Or do I even care? Am Am I apathetic? Do I remember how merciful God has been to me and so want to extend that to other people? Or do I want to condemn people? that are needy and helpless, and keep them at arm's length. Blessed are the merciful, Jesus says, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, they will see God. What is purity of heart? Well, purity in the Bible, and biblical imagery, purity is uncontaminated innocence. Uncontaminated innocence. Clean, single-mindedness. Undividedly holy. And then heart in the Bible is the very center of our entire personality. So like the very center of you. And so purity of heart is an undivided, uncontaminated, single-minded innocence at the very core of who you are (laughs) like how well does that describe you it's challenging isn't it Stott says it's when you're utterly sincere complete integrity without guile or hypocrisy like don't just think about purity of heart is not just like being conformed to the rules it's not just about following rules it goes much deeper than our actions it's integrity of the heart Here's the question. At the very core of who I am, am I committed and uncontaminated? I like that word. Am I uncontaminated in my thoughts, in my emotions, in my beliefs, and then fleshed out in my actions? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Two more. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God peacemaker. No, notice that he doesn't say being peaceful. That's not what it says. He doesn't say like people who like peace. It doesn't say people who um, enjoy peace. He doesn't say people who run away from conflict. He says, blessed are the peacemaker, one who seeks peace, one who seeks shalom. In the Bible, uh, in, in Hebrew understanding, they talk about peace in a much broader term. This word shalom is about wholeness, harmony, unity, rather than conflict strife and discord police are supposed to be peacemakers right our safety team is about being peacemakers they're not looking for conflict but they're proactively looking to make sure that there's peace then when they see a problem when they see conflict they step forward to try to bring bring about a peaceful solution john stott says who is the greatest peacemaker Well, it's God himself. He made peace by offering the very life of his son. Peacemaking with us was costly for God, right? And peacemaking for us is costly as well. Like, how hard is it to say sorry? Sometimes it's really hard to say sorry, right? Especially when we've been hurt by other people. So here's a question I'm going to ask myself. Do I work to bring the peace to others that I've received from God? Like, do I take the initiative with that? Do I work toward that? Or am I okay at just kind of sitting back and not engaging and staying away from the conflict? Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called children of God. And then the last one, he says, "'Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, "'for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. "'Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, "'and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me.'" Jesus says, "'Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven.'" in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, this isn't, this isn't about being persecuted because you're a jerk. <laughs> that's, that's not what this is about. That's not what he's saying here. It's not about being persecuted because of your sins, because of your mistakes. It's about being persecuted because of righteousness, because Jesus is the most important thing about you. You're persecuted because of believing and living your life according to God's design and God's desire. By the way, this was never popular. It's never been popular to live this way. Not in Abraham's day in the Bible, not in Moses' day in the Bible, not in Jesus' day or in our day. Why should we expect anything different for us? Following Jesus is not always popular. And and, and can I say this? If you want to be accepted, if you want to be loved by everyone, if you want to be loved by the world, following Jesus is going to be a struggle for you. Following Jesus is going to be a struggle for you. Because it's not always popular. It's not always accepted. We're not always loved by the world. (laughs) You'll make compromises in it. I'm grateful for the freedoms that we have here in this country. But it's often so unpopular and not well-received to actually believe all of what Jesus said and try to follow that while loving people. Lots of people rejected Jesus and his disciples even though they loved and they cared for people. And lots of people will reject us today as well. Even when we try hard to love and care for people simply because we believe in truth. It's the reality. It's where we live. We've got to come to terms with that. So the question I've been asking myself is, do I hold to God's ways even when it's not popular? Think about that in your own life. Like, do, do I hold to what God says even when it's not in vogue? Even when it's not popular in our culture? Is what he says, all of what he says, important to me? Is that the center of my life? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, there's so much here. Like, argh, there's so much here. Like, I don't know how you feel when you, when you read this, and when you hear these things. Like, I can get overwhelmed, you know? Like, I am so far from living this out in my life consistently. Like, I don't even know what to do. Listen, the answer is not, well, go out, Paul, and try harder. Go get them. Yeah, that's not the answer. Like, it's not about you and I trying harder. That's not how we're going to live this way consistently. Although we do have choices, right? Like, we all have choices that we have to make to follow this, to live this way or not to. But the answer isn't to try harder for us. The answer for us is to cling to Jesus. Like, that's the answer. Spend more time with him. Get to know him better. Love him more. I think most people look at Jesus' words here and the picture that they paint, and they think, well, I'd like to be that way. Like, I I wish I were that way. I mean, I don't think I could do it. Well, you can't. Like, we can't do it. At least not on our own. But the good news is that's not how God is calling us. That's not what he's asking us to do. We're called to cling to Christ. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Purpose, meaning, fulfillment, they aren't found in an easy, comfortable, painless, happy life. That's not it. Like there is so much that we miss out on when easy, comfortable, happy, and painless are our goals. We miss out on so much stuff. Purpose, meaning, and fulfillment are found in Jesus if that's what you're looking for in your life, if you're looking for purpose, if you're looking for fulfillment, If you're looking to be passionate about something, it's in Christ. When we're in Him, He calls us to live differently. And sometimes that's hard. Like, it's hard to live selflessly, right? It's hard to live purposefully. It's hard to live as a citizen of His kingdom. But the good news is we're not alone. Like, we're not not alone in any of this. He promises to transform us, to change us by His Spirit living inside of us. Here's the last question I want to ask you. I want you to think about this week. Last question. It's a good question. Whose kingdom am I more closely connected with? Whose whose kingdom am I more closely connected with? Like, where is my citizenship? Is my citizenship in some other kingdom? Is it in in a world, an earthly kingdom? Is it in the kingdom of some man? Is it in my kingdom with me on the throne? Or is it in God's kingdom? Like, I can promise you that he loves you. And he wants you to be part of his kingdom with you knowing, loving, and following Jesus. He wants to be the loving, gracious, powerful king in your life. But he's not a forceful king. Not yet, anyways. He's not going to force you to be part of his kingdom. But he gives us the choice. Whose kingdom do we want to live in? Do we want to live in our kingdom? Do we want to live in some earthly kingdom? someone else's king or do we want to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven with Jesus on the throne he gives us freedom to choose I hope we choose him